Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And today, it's all about serial killers. I've got Bill Burns, an expert on serial killers, who shares all kinds of crazy stories about some of the most notorious multiple slangs in history, from Ted Bundy to Jeffrey Dahmer to the Black Dahlia killer, George Hodel. Bill offers some insight into how their minds work, what motivates them, how they're able to get away with their crimes for so long, and ultimately what brought them all down. He talks about some of the most notorious female serial killers as well. Bill also offers his thoughts on why serial killings have been declining in the last decade and what's replaced them. It's a fascinating conversation and very creepy as well. So you might need a laugh or two after this one. If you do, then head to my Facebook page or YouTube channel. Check out the Winnipeggers. we got a new episode coming up tomorrow, 9 p.m. Eastern, every Thursday. This one's all about the Ville. It's a place that we used to hang out at and get trouble in Winnipeg when we were younger. It was like a one-stop uh shop for places to get in trouble when you're a little kid or i shouldn't say little teenager a bowling alley an arcade a hotel a vendor which sold beer and a strip club and a bar wait until you hear some of the crazy things we did to try and get inside before we're legal, old, legally old enough how we did get inside once we got in fake id the whole thing grab yourself a drink and have some laughs at the expense of the winnipeggers uh, myself ribo and spewy New episodes every Thursday on my Facebook page and YouTube channel. And uh, the show's growing, so we appreciate you checking us out for some laughs. And we appreciate you staying here for some chilling information about serial killers with expert Bill Burns right now on Talk is Jericho. So, once again, the uh, great relationship that I have with, with Dave Schrader... Uh, from Beyond the Darkness, always um, turns me on to great guests, great topics, great ideas. And we got uh, Bill Burns is here today, and you are kind of a expert on uh, on the mindset of, of, of a serial killer. And I guess just to start out, first of all, how do you become an expert on the mindset of serial killers? This, this is back in the 80s. This is actually before Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, the Hillside Stranglers, the whole pa- uh, Edward Gein, the whole panoply of serial killers, he found out that there were certain common characteristics, phys- actual physical characteristics, lead poisoning, that they had very similar backgrounds, they were animal abusers, they were fire starters, and his theory was that serial killers don't just pop up out of nowhere like like flowers in the spring. Serial killers evolve from the time they're children, and there are certain traits, certain givens that you can pinpoint and say, okay, that's going in the direction. That is um, a, a, a sexual homicide offender that will soon develop. And that he said that if you look at the careers of serial killers, you will find a lot of them are cat burglars, right? They'll sneak into houses, steal stuff and leave. And you'll find that a lot of them, same thing with the, uh, they torture animals, they start fires and they actually are, uh, they abuse other people. So they don't start off by murdering people. It's a very gradual process. But what he couldn't figure out was why why is it that they evolve what what's driving them what's propelling them to evolve to actually committing sexual homicides so we went back and we looked 
through all the records, all the police records and the psychological records of serial killers. And one of the things we found is that this is in the book Serial Killers that came out in 1988. One of the things we found is that there's not some on-off switch that, oh, you're a serial killer. Oh, you're not a serial killer today, but you're a serial killer the next day. And what we actually found out was that there's a spectrum of behaviors that slowly evolve. And if there's no intervention along the spectrum, eventually the offender will turn out to become a killer. Then went to look for, well, okay, so is it the thrill of killing? Is he a thrill killer? Again, that didn't seem to work out because if you look at the after homicide, post homicide, you find out that these individuals are all necrophiles. So that so the what's luring them in is the promise of sex with a corpse. Next question. Why would they want to have sex with a corpse? I mean, why? So we went to the next stage, which is what if the whole point of serial homicide was to have a corpse? And what does the corpse give you? What is the course of what does the corpse provide you? Yes, sex. But why? The answer really almost answered itself. It was that serial killers are sociopaths. And what a sociopath needs to do is have total control over the victim. That was the point. Now, once you know that, once you actually assume that it's all about complete control over a victim, then you can like reverse engineer the whole process of the spectrum. And you find out that control is something that this person this killer wanted from the time he was a little kid. And it is always, and is it always a he? And again, the answer was no. Then you look at the modus operandi of serial killers and you find out that serial killers insert themselves into the community of victims. So think of it this way. You ever see a shows like Animal Planet and you know Nature in the Wild and Marlon Perkins, all, right, all those animal shows, yep. right? So one of the things they, um, the host will say is that you look at the antelopes or the water buffalo feeding in an isolated stream someplace, say it's in Africa, and in the bushes is a lion or a tiger. And the antelopes and the lion of the tiger doesn't just hang around in a pack of other lions and tigers. They hang around with their prey. Now, we applied that to the idea of a serial killer. Bingo. What a serial killer does, now a longtime sexual offender too, does is that person hangs out with his prey. So what was Ted Bundy? Where did Ted Bundy work? in a rape crisis center. Uh, what was Jeffrey Dahmer looking for? Jeffrey Dahmer fashioned himself as a photographer in the uh, gay community in uh, Milwaukee and in West Allis, Wisconsin. 
So he's hanging out with his prey. John Wayne Gacy, he was frequenting the bus stations where he would see um, young boys because he was um, he, he only killed young men. He would see young boys. His lure was, you see, he would see a younger boy, teenager in a bus station, looked lonely. Gacy would approach him and say, hey, kid, I bet you need a job. I'm a construction. I'm a construction contractor. I'm a GC. I'm always looking for guys who can, you know, hold whole nails, carry tools. And they say, oh, yeah, I need the money. That was the lure. He'd take him and, and kill him. Jeffrey Dahmer's lure was, say, I'm a photographer and you're a good looking young man. I bet you that if I did a series of headshots of you, I could sell them and you'll get a deal. Oh, yeah, I need the money. Sure. That was the lure. What was Ted Bundy's lure? Ted Bundy's lure was this very sophisticated lure. And he would say, Oh, he would have a plaster cast on his arm right. and he would say, oh, my arm is broken. Um, could you please help me like a nice young person? Could you please help me lift uh, my skis off my ski rack? I can't handle them. I broke my arm. And the young lady would say, oh, sure. Walk up. Then he'd say, oh, you know what? I need to take him and take him to my mother's house. Could you pop? And I'll drive you back here. I'm sorry. I know it's an imposition. And she'd say, sure, sure. Because he was a good looking young man. Get into the car. He'd club her with a tire iron. And that was that. Almost every serial killer from the Boston Strangler, who was a, a plumber, right? Boston Strangler, all the way through today, they use a lure to trap their victims. Talk about female serial killers. Yeah, please do. Jean Jones was a nurse in the um, birth ward of a hospital. What did she do? She killed babies. So a serial killer, more often than not, inserts himself or herself into the community of victims upon whom that person is preying. And so that's the modus operandi of a serial killer. There's so many ways and questions that are brought up but i guess is 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 a serial killer a form of a human being who's just born that way shall we say i mean um because you, you alluded to a little bit of it but when you're talking about a, a bundy and a gacy and mm-hmm. you know all these different people just the, the the links that they go to 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 kill i mean obviously um and you mentioned the reasons why but what causes them to go into that into that direction in the first place? Is it something that's just in them from the start? No, actually, um, there is a child psychologist, very famous child psychologist, a developmental psychologist. His name is Eric Erickson, not the Eric Erickson today that's the editor of Reason Magazine, but this is you know decades, decades ago, back earlier in the 20th century. And Eric Erickson uh, wrote a book and did a study on um, the seven ages of development. I mean, he obviously took that from the Shakespearean play, but it's the seven ages of development. And he defined these as developmental crises. And the healthy human being manages to overcome each crisis and grows from the crisis. 
And so his theory was that the first crisis, absolutely the first crisis in the first two years of a child's life, it's the crisis of separation that in human beings, what the child has to do is be is define itself, whether it's a boy or a girl, is define itself as separate from its parents. That there's a world outside of the nest. And to enter that world, the child has to redefine itself. Well, it's not something children do automatically. It's something parents do for the child. So that is the psychological component. Then there is another component, which we wrote about too, and that component is a biological and a neurological component. So the first crisis is the crisis of self-identity, placing oneself in the world, the definition of what is myself and what is not myself. The child has to overcome that crisis. But besides the psychological development of that child, something else that goes on. Human beings are one of the few species that are born with an abundance of neurons, an abundance of, of, a nerve, of nerve cells, more nerve cells than they're ever going to use. And that first year and a half to two years is a refining of those nerve cells and a shedding of those nerve cells. So that's the biological component. And the second part of that component is, that was the neurological, biological one on the second, and then there's a the psychological component, then there's the social component, where the developing child has to make a distinction between this is the outside world and this is who I am. In other words, the sep uh, this, this boundary. Now, we all know about boundaries. We've all met people in our lives, I'm sure you have, I know I have, People for whom there's no boundary, right? right? Yeah. It doesn't exist. Everything is mine. If I want it, it belongs to me. If I see it, it's mine. If you have it, I can take it because it's mine. I don't even recognize that you exist. That development of, of borders is crucial for the development of a healthy child. When we went back to look at all the serial killer development uh, or the development of a serial killer, what we found was that to a person that never happened. So are serial killers born that way? No. But at a very, very early age, a, um, a child who never makes that distinction between me and not me, I and not I, that person becomes a sociopath. Sociopaths are some of the most dangerous people on the planet. Why is that? Because a sociopath will stop at nothing to define himself as owning everything. Serial killers are the ultimate form of sociopaths. That's how they develop. Because you, you said they, they want to prove that they own everything. Is that what you said? Exactly. A, a sociopath makes no definition between the outside world and the inside world, that person extends his personality over everything. And look, it could be healthy. I mean, here's, here's the crazy part about it. There are sociopaths 
who make great bosses, who make great corporate leaders, who achieve great things because they're able to eliminate everything else from their world and simply progress toward a goal. That's why all these serial killers are necrophiles because a serial killer must have control. That is at the core of a serial killer's being, control over the whole outside world. So what does a serial killer do? He has sex with its corpse. Why? Because guess what a corpse can never say? No. Jeffrey Dahmer, and then at the extreme, even beyond killing and even beyond sex with a corpse, is the ingestion of material from the corpse. What did Jeffrey Dahmer do? Jeffrey Dahmer wore pieces of the corpses around him like clothing. Jeffrey Dahmer had skulls stashed in his refrigerator. It's the ultimate control. Ted Bundy would go, would revisit his, uh, the burial sites of his victims and see how quickly they were decomposing. And the ones that were decomposing slower, he'd have sex with them. Arthur Shawcross was known as the Genesee vampire, the cannibal of Genesee uh, up in Rochester, New York. What did he do? He ate his victims. So that's the ultimate form of it. I mean, you just talk about, you know, eating the victims and, and, and burying the bodies and having sex with them. I mean, is there no, is there, is there any form of guilt for these, these people? Or is it just, this is just the way it is. Do they know they're doing something wrong? Do they care? No, because there's no guilt because they never feel any separation toward the victim. There's no remorse. They own the victim. For a serial killer, that victim's mine. I own that. So why would I feel remorse? That's the mentality. Let's talk about negotiating with a serial killer, if that's even possible. But first, I think this might be a good place to take a break from murder and death to celebrate love. We need to remember the good in the world, right? Valentine's Day right around the corner. So if you're looking for something extra special for your extra special Valentine, Steven Singer has got the hookup. His brand new deep navy blue sparkling 24 karat gold dip twinkle twinkle rose is perfect for your Valentine. But time is running out because the new color sells out every single year. And this one is so stunning and sparkly. It's going fast. I mean, just imagine on Valentine's Day when she opens up this amazing gift box and out slides a beautiful blue rose trimmed in gold. Huh? And that's not just any blue. This blue is the color of the sky. Just before the sun sets, when the stars are coming out and sparkling, that's the breathtaking sparkly blue color I'm talking about. So go now to see this real rose deeply dipped in pure 24 karat gold with petals in this unique dazzling blue that mimics the stars in the night sky. How romantic is that? Exclusively available at Steven Singer Jewelers. Real jewelers, real roses, real dipped in pure 24 karat gold with a real lifetime guarantee. It's always the number one Valentine's Day gift. It lasts forever. I know this. I've bought some for my wife in the past. The red one, the orange one, but this is the blue one. It also comes with your own free personal love note, and it ships fast and free to the real love of your life. It ships fast and free to mom, grandma, your daughter, your aunt, your uh, neighbor next door, whatever you want to do, whoever you want to say I love you to, and I'm so lucky to have you in my life. Send them the Twinkle Twinkle Rose from Steven Singer. Steven's famous roses start at only $59, and you can see the whole collection and place your order at IHateStevenSinger.com. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. 
let's say, you know, I'm in a time machine and I, I get kidnapped by Jeffrey Dahmer. Is there any negotiating with these types of people? Is there any way you could ever escape, get out alive uh, by talking with them? No, the only way to get out alive is to escape, which Carol uh, 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 DeRange did in Ted Bundy when he, when he said to her, oh, come on, um, I will drive you home. She walks up to the car. She sees, this is his VW Beetle. She sees there's no passenger seat. And he tries to get a tire iron. She sees it and flees. That's the only way to escape a serial killer. Be afraid, be very afraid, and go away. That's the only way to escape. Because a serial killer operates in, now this is also circadian and cyclical. So a serial killer operates there like, seven ages of a kind of a psychodrama. The first is the urge to find a victim. Look, guys, when they're younger, you want to go out and find a girl, right? So you're going to go on a hunt to find a, a cute girl. You go into a singles bar. Uh, you'll meet a girl. You'll try and chat her up and be friends. That's normal, right? That's, that's how couples meet. But right. for a serial killer... It's worse. You're looking for a victim. You're not looking for a friend. You're looking for something you can own, a bright, shiny object you can own. So a serial killer will go on a hunt. For Ted Bundy, the hunt was, since he worked at a rape crisis center, he met all kinds of women. And since he was also in politics in the state of Washington, met a lot of women. And see, since he worked at the University of Washington, he's in the community of his victims. So Basically, all he had to do was find a victim, first step. Two, lure the victim. Ted Bundy, oh, my arm is broken. Please help me lift my skis off my car. Jeffrey Dahmer, oh, um, I want to take your photograph. You're a good-looking guy. Uh, I can make you a a male model. Let me take a a series of photos of you. John Wayne Gacy, oh, you, you look hungry. I can give you a job. That's the lure. That's stage two. Stage three is you spring the trap. So you've got the victim, you spring the trap. Bundy's trap, knock him out with a tire iron. Dahmer's trap, drug a drink. Hey, before we do this, let's relax. Uh, Let me make you a drink. The drink was laced with Rohypnol, the date rape drug. Your victim's unconscious. You kill the victim. You dissect the victim, you save the parts you want, store the rest in a, in, um, in a 50-gallon oil drum, and then wait for dark to dump it. So that's the springing the trap. Once the trap is sprung, and you've got a victim under your complete control, then there is the homicide, the actual killing. But after the killing, there is the sex. Then, because serial killers need to reinvigorate their high, what they do is they save trophies. That's why Dahmer saved all his victims' corpses. That's why um, uh, Arthur Shawcross, the vampire of of, uh, a Genesee, would take bites out of his victim and save the flesh. That's why Ted Bundy secreted his victims in um, hidden burial sites to revisit them. They became not just a sex object, but a trophy. So you're dealing with with basically just like you mentioned, just animals, complete, yeah, remorseless, thoughtless animals, basically. 
That's right. That have only one mission in life. Killing. And, and it's a process. They live for this. They don't do anything else. Mm-hmm. They may have day lives because the day lives provide them with their camouflage. So serial killers, they're like UFOs in one respect. They hide in plain sight. Okay. I mean, you could look at a Jeffrey Dahmer and not realize this guy was a serial killer because he was working at a candy factory. You could look at Ted Bundy at a rape crisis center or working for the governor of the state of Washington. Normal guy. Until you cross his path when he's on the hunt for a victim. So you mentioned on the hunt. Is this something that like if they're on the hunt and they have the urge to kill and they kill somebody, does that kind of quench the thirst for a while or is this an ongoing thing? Yes, indeed. That's exactly what happens. It's quenched because what happens is after the this is in a way this is not bipolar, but in a way there's a manic depressive um, a, a pendulum swing. After the murder and the sex, they slip into a kind of a depression where they have to hide. And it's almost like an animal that um, has eaten its prey and now has to settle down and digest the prey. Are they keeping people kind of prisoners for extended amounts of time? Or is it something where they kidnap them, take them to their lair and kill them? Well, that happened with this killer. What you just said happened with this killer called Bobby Joe Long down in Florida, down in Tampa. He was known as first as the Tampa Bay classified ad rapist. What Bobby Joe Long would do is he would look at the classified ads. I guess in the Tampa Bay Tribune, he'd look at the classified ads, find people selling something. He would answer the ad. Uh, I want to buy that video camera. Uh, I want to buy that couch. Usually a woman, well, almost always a woman. Kidnap the victim, keep the victim in chains for sex, then kill the victim. Wow. Two other serial killers uh, in California in the 1970s through in in, in 1980 were Leonard Lake and Charles Ng. This was a very elaborate completely elaborate scheme that they had. Leonard Lake would troll the, um, uh, the streets of San Francisco, especially um, Haight-Ashbury. And he would look for drug dealers, teenagers on the run, again, people selling um, video equipment. He'd answer the ads. Then what he did was he built, this was so elaborate, he had a little uh, cottage in up in Mendocino County, California, uh, in, a, in a town called Wilseyville. In this town, in this, ca- in this land that he had, he built an obstacle course. Then he built a whole underground bunker, which was underground bunker, which was lined with video cameras pointing in at the victims. And what he did was he had elaborate tortures built I mean, talk about sickness. And his background was that when he was a child, his parents couldn't afford to raise, they had a bunch of kids and they couldn't afford to raise Leonard Lake. So they pawned them off to his uncle. His uncle was also crazy. So he made Leonard Lake grow his hair down to his shoulders and dress him up as a woman. Well, you can imagine for somebody who was separated from his parents, 
never allowed to grow, joined the Marines where he learned to kill, built this. And then he, what he did was he had, he kept everything in a diary called the Miranda Diaries, where he documented everything he did. Why was it, why did he call it the Miranda Diaries? In Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, Prospero, who actually was a real uh, historic figure called John Dee, but um, a Prospero has a daughter called Miranda, and he doesn't allow Miranda to see anything in the outside world because he hates the outside world, and he inculcates into her the idea that the world is evil and she must stay with him. And when he finally releases her, when he's released from the island, that's where the line comes, oh, brave new world that hath such wonders to it. So that's the character of Miranda. In, there was a movie years ago, and I'm trying to think of the name of this movie, uh, The Collector, starring uh, Terrence Stamp. I, I once spoke to Terrence Stamp about this. And The Collector was a version of uh, The Tempest where this character would troll the streets looking for women, capture the woman, bring her back to his underground bunker, have sex with the woman, and then kill the woman and bury her. And that was Leonard Lake's fantasy. That's what he wanted to do. So he built this elaborate bunker replete with video cameras and sound. And then he had an obstacle course. So if he were capturing a married couple, he would say to the male, the only way I'm going to allow you to live, the only way is you have to complete this obstacle course. But of course, the whole point was he doesn't complete the obstacle course because at a certain point he kills him, buries him in a shallow grave, and then enjoys himself with the woman until he kills her and buries her in a shallow grave. That's what serial killers do. Now, they each have different operational modes, but it ends all in the same place. When you're talking about uh, the serial killers, it's interesting because while you were talking, I just Googled serial killers and you can see the, the they have them listed by proven victims on down. There's so many outside of America from like Luis Garavito and Pedro Lopez and a lot of them like in the South American are just basically killing street people, street children and, and prostitutes and that sort of thing. Is it easier for those types of guys to go after kind of the nameless faces of the world where you never find them? Um, Absolutely. Or, or, yeah. And that's kind of Absolutely. I mean, that was the whole point of the, um, the Green River Killer up in Seattle. The Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway was his name. He was a prostitute killer. And when Ted Bundy, this is the book, The River Man, which, which really is a definition of this. When Ted Bundy was in jail, in he was on death row in Stark, Florida. He was going crazy when this guy, Gary Ridgway, was killing in his own territory. So he contacted the two police officers, detectives, homicide detectives, who were searching for the Green River Killer. One of them was a detective called Robert Keppel. Keppel was the guy who first identified Bundy in Seattle back in the 80s. The other one was Dave Reichert. Dave Reichert was on the Green River Task Force. He ultimately became the sheriff. He later became the sheriff of King County. Then he was elected to Congress. He's just retired, but, but, but he was a congressman. So when Ted Bundy was reading about the Green River Killer, he wrote to Keppel and said, if you could bring Dave Reichert and you 
I will show you how to catch the Green River Killer. So Keppel and Reichert went down to Florida and spent, interviewed Bundy. They had a long exchange with Bundy with letters and phone calls. And Bundy's promise to Keppel and Reichert was, I will tell you all of my kills that you don't know I did and bodies that I buried so the victims' families will have some solace if I can stay out of the electric chair for a while at least, stay out of the electric chair, and then in the process, I will help you catch the Green River Killer. So Keppel and Reichert write this report. That report goes to the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit. And guess who discovers that report is um, the person who wrote Silence of the Lambs. Oh, wow. So that story becomes the Silence of the Lambs. Let's talk about the intelligence of these killers, uh, how chilling they are and how calculating. But before we continue on with Bill, I got to take a second to thank a longtime Talk is Jericho sponsor that's not only supporting this show, but also supporting my family's New Year's resolution to get rid of the stuff that we no longer use. And there's plenty of it. Thank you to Mercari. The Mercari app is getting a serious workout at my house lately. And if your house is anything like mine, I know you have a ton of stuff lying around that you aren't using anymore. Maybe your kids have outgrown it or you've upgraded to a newer model. Whatever the case may be, you need Mercari, the marketplace app that makes it easy to say goodbye to your unused stuff so that someone else can say hello. It's the easiest way to give items a new life and a new home and to make some cash in the process. All you got to do is download Mercari, take a few pics, add a description, and boom, the item is on its way to being sold. No meetups involved when you sell. You just box it up and Mercari will email you a shipping label. You can buy and sell almost anything on Mercari like video game consoles, games, controllers, clothing, phones and tablets, all kinds of toys. And with over 50 million app downloads, think about 50 million app downloads, your items actually sell on Mercari. Your stuff might be exactly what someone else is looking for. So turn your goodbye into someone else's hello on Mercari. Start buying and selling when you download today from the app stores or at Mercari.com. That's M-E-R-C-A-R-I, Mercari.com. That's your marketplace. Let's talk about the intelligence of these of these people because okay we're talking about them being just barbarians and animals with no remorse but just all of the stuff that they're able to do and the way that they're able to to trap the lure the burials getting rid of all the evidence i mean this is a 24 hours seven days a week operation and you also have to put on the facade of, of a normal life with a job and all that sort of thing as well i mean bundy even had a girlfriend for gosh sakes yeah, he, uh, he, uh, he had a quote-unquote fiancé. And the daughter, Molly Kendall, who grew up in the house with Liz Kendall and Ted Bundy, has written a book. Mm. And the point of that book is that Ted Bundy reached out from her from death row and said that he found the Lord. He found salvation. And she said, after what you did, don't connect with me. Right. But yeah, because, and, and it's, also, this other thing happens once a serial killer is caught and put in jail. At that point, the external structure of the prison system, right? Very regimented, very rigid. Every moment of a prisoner's life is controlled by outside guards. At that point, there's this reversal that takes place. The reversal is that the serial killer never feels remorse. The remorse is fake, by the way. They all lie. They have to lie because they're living a double life. There is this remorse, 
that they claim to be feeling. But in reality, it's the institutionalization of their environment that allows them to become saner, not remorseful, but at least saner. And then when they go back over their own histories, for example, when Bundy was telling these two homicide detectives why he wanted them to catch the Green River Killer, the reason was he felt that in a competition of serial killers, Ted Bundy was better because he was tracking housewives, college students, people, normal, everyday people. Or, whereas the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway, he said was doing it easy. He was capturing prostitutes. Well, he was right. Prostitutes are easy kills. Why? Because what is a prostitute? It's on the edge of the law to begin with. For in most states, prostitution is illegal. So they're on the edge of the law. They're outsiders. They're outlaws. So they're not going to flee to the police or anything because they're already breaking the law. Are these guys following their own exploits uh, in the papers and on the news? And are they kind of getting off on, on, on confusing the cops and, and, and making people scared? Yes, absolutely true. Bobby Joe Long and Ted Bundy both would read the stories about their crimes in the newspapers and get high again. They get a thrill from reading about what they do. In fact, story of um, Ted Bundy and this one victim called George Ann Hawkins. Ted Bundy was very proud of this. He was hanging outside the library at the University of Washington looking for his next victim. And he had the same lure. My arm is broken. Could you help me? I'm doing this. Then when the victim, then when he walked the victim over to the car, he would drop his, oh, I dropped my car keys. Could you help me? I can't, I can't reach them. When she bent down, he clubbed her with a tire iron, threw her in the car, handcuffed her to the car, drove out to an isolated place, killed the victim, buried the victim, went back to have sex. That was his, in the case of George Ann Hawkins, Ted Bundy tried three victims who when he dropped the keys, they ran away, hmm. right? They didn't trust him. George N. Hawkins was this kind, sweet sorority girl. She said, oh, I'll, I'll help you. Um, and and um, she's so nice, this handsome guy, she's helping out. He says, oh, but she says, my name is Georgie. How can I help you? They walk to his car. He clubs her, throws her in the car. Then she begins to come too. But she's in a delirious state. So she thinks that he is her Spanish tutor for an exam the next day. And she starts going over the questions. Bundy strangles her immediately. Stops the car, strangles her, drives through the woods. And as he's driving through the woods, he's throwing her jewelry and her belongings out the window. Buries her. Then he reads about this missing girl. Drives back to the same place he picked her up, the, the parking lot outside the library, and he sees police all over the place, total police drag all over the place. But he doesn't drive there because he's smart enough to know that if somebody saw his very distinctive VW Beetle with a luggage rack on back, the ski rack in back, he realizes he'd be identified. So instead of driving there, he rides his bike there. Why is he in a panic at this point? Because one of the earrings is missing. He couldn't find the other earring. So he figures when I hit her, she probably probably fell off. He goes into the parking lot on his bike. He sees a cop standing there. 
So he asked the cop, gee, gee, uh, what's going on, man? I was at a library here. Uh, What's going on? The cop says, oh, man, there's a missing co-ed. And he says, where? And when the cop points to the library that she was walking out of, Ted Bundy bends over, scoops up the earring on the ground, dumps it in his pocket and says, oh, wow, that's scary. I'm getting out of here. And that's how the one clue that the police would have had is taken by the killer. So how how do these guys eventually get caught? Is there is there a, a desire deep down inside to get arrested and get full credit for this? Are they trying to stay on the lam as long as they can? They're trying to stay on the lam as long as they can. But eventually they just run out of gas. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bobby Joe, here's a, the story of Bobby Joe Long is very instructive. Bobby oh. Joe Long was um, his last victim was this teenage girl, 17 year old girl. Riding a bike, captures her, drags her back to his place, and she starts telling her story to him. Oh, yeah, you know, my father died, and uh, I've got this disease, and I'm just miserable. What does he do? He, he, I interviewed him years ago. He lets her go. So I said to him, why would you let your victim go? He said, she touched my heart. And I was so struck by her that I let her go. I said, well, you know what was going to happen. You knew what was going to happen next. He said, I knew when I let her go, I was going to be arrested within days. That's exactly what happened. Now, Bobby Joe Long's story was that he was in the army and and he was riding his motorcycle, ran headlong into a truck. I mean, he had a brain trauma brain damage. And he said, I woke up in the hospital and the weirdest thing started happening to me. He said, I was seeing nurses walk by and all I wanted to do was have sex with them. I couldn't control myself. Mm -hmm. So there was, so that was an impulse control mechanism due to brain damage. I get it. Okay. And what made him so furious was that since he was in the army, he wanted the VA to pay for his medical bills pay for his operation. They didn't. It got worse. He began having delusions. And with his impulse control gone, the sexuality that he was feeling towards women consumed him. And so that's how he, that's how he got caught. Right. So let's talk about somebody like, a, like how, to, and I know the story, but we've talked a lot about Ted Bundy. How does Ted Bundy end up getting arrested? Because he's very smart. Very smart, but he missed one small, tiny detail. Ted Bundy is killing across three states, Colorado, Utah, Oregon, and as well as killing in the state of Washington, so four states. One of his victims was um, in Bountiful, Utah, and he kidnaps her, just standard MO, knocks her unconscious, he kills her, has sex with her, buries her. And then what he does is he's driving through a Utah, a Salt Lake City neighborhood, Salt Lake City suburb. But one of the lights is out. One of his headlights is out. It's a padiddle. Um, One of his headlights is out on his VW. He's spotted by a sheriff's car. The sheriff sees a car with one headlight out in the middle of the night driving through a suburban development. He follows Bundy. Bundy sees the police car. 
and he begins throwing out of his car all his burglary tools. Well, the sheriff's officer sees that, turns his lights on. Ted Bundy tries to talk his way out of it because he's he was a law student. Mm -hmm. So he's talking his way out of it. And the sheriff says, look, I, I have to look inside your car. I'm seeing burglary tools. The possession of burglary tools in the state of Utah is a felony. Mm. So Bundy's arrested. But then he, he manages to convince the police to release him on his own recognizance. So he's now out of jail. And the first thing he does is he cleans the inside of his car. I mean, he details the inside of his car. And he thinks he's really smart. Well, the police search the car. They examine the car. And what they find is one strand of hair wrapped around the gear shift. For all of Bundy's obsessiveness, he didn't clean the gear shift lever. Hmm. They find the gear shift. They match the hair to a missing girl. Bundy's arrested. They notify the Ted, um, the um, Ted Bundy task force, Bob Keppel, in King County. Now, for all the Ted's they were investigating, there were like 150 Ted's who had VW Beetles. So, Keppel um, says, "Yeah, that could be." Our. He takes the Bundy file, which was like 70 or 80 and moves it up to the top seven, then moves it up to the top. And sure enough, they begin to investigate Bundy while he's still on the lam. Well, the Colorado police, they form a task force. And that's very important, too, because it was the first time in uh, the history of police activity and, ho and police homicide investigations that multiple states form a single task force for one killer that's um, on the loose. They meet. They realize Bundy is probably their killer, and the Colorado police arrest him for homicide. He's put on trial, and he's convicted. Then he's in a courtroom lockup waiting for a sentence. He escapes. He escapes, and he steals a car, drives all across the country on a killing spree in Michigan, winds up in Florida. In Florida... The first place he goes, he breaks into, because remember, this is a Syrac he has he's driven by sexual desire. He breaks into the Chi Omega sorority house and starts clubbing girls to death. Then he flees. Then he sees a young 12 12-year-old uh, girl, Kimberly Leach, who he kills as well. Now the Florida police are onto this guy. So what does Bundy do? He steals a car. Note to any offenders, to any felons, the last thing you should ever do is steal a car. You want to know why? Why? Because you might as well have a neon sign on the back of your car saying this is a stolen vehicle because all a cop has to do, he, he, he gets a stolen car report, right? NCIS stolen car report, sees the license plate, comes up on his dashboard, it comes up on his phone his car radio, he knows this person is driving a stolen car. So the police see the stolen car. They read the license plate. They go after this guy. Finally, they capture him after a car chase and at gunpoint. He says, yeah, I'm Ted Bundy. I'm wanted in the state of Colorado. That's the end of Bundy. Wow. I mean, you read this and hear about it and even just going through, once again, some of these killers like uh, Robert Hansen prostitutes he kidnapped were released into the Alaskan wilderness 
for him to hunt down like animals. I mean, it's right. so, something out of a movie. Like this is like movie stuff, but it's real life. Right. I mean, um, similarly, in the case of Jeffrey Dahmer, he had this one victim, last victim, whom he drugs. But he doesn't lace it with enough um, rohypnol. So as a result, the guy is groggy. He passes out. He wakes up and he sees Dahmer over by the fridge. He runs out of the house, flags down a cop. Cop calls somebody else. They go to Bundy's uh, uh, house. Bundy says, I don't know who this guy is. Who is he? I don't know who he is. Never, I, I, I mean, Dahmer says, I don't know this guy. The cop says, we need to search your apartment. Dahmer says, no way. You don't have a search warrant. The cop says, this is the Milwaukee police. The cop says, we don't need a search warrant if a crime is committed on a premises. And we know it is because we have a, a victim, a, a witness who said it. They break into his, they break past him by his door. And that's when Dahmer confesses the whole thing. In other words, the delusion is broken. Bundy's delusion, Dahmer's delusion, broken. And they confess it all. As we start to, uh, to to wind down a little bit here, you mentioned earlier female serial killers. Obviously not as prevalent, but there still is quite a few of them. Tell us about some of the most infamous uh, of, of the women. Sure. There's Janine Jones. She was a neonatal nurse. So she's living with her victims at the hospital. So what she does is she begins um, faking a natural death of the babies. And the only way she gets caught are the number of deaths while she's on watch. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's one. The other one is this person called Aileen Wernos. She's the Florida. She's the Florida Highway serial killer. She would hitch. She'd be hitchhiking, get picked up by a trucker. She'd kill the trucker. Her argument was she'd been raped by her father. She'd been abused by men her entire life. This was her revenge. To go and kill the truckers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and her lure was, oh, I'm a pretty woman. I'm on a highway. I'm luring these people to pick me up. And I know they want to have sex with me. So I'll kill them first. And what's the motivation there? Because when you're talking about with the guys, it was, it was very much sexually motivated. Is it the same with the women as well? Absolutely. Same, same thing. They're sociopaths. They're the extreme end of sociopathology. They have no way of dealing with any adversities in life except through murder. Who, um, besides, we've mentioned so many, but who are some of the worst besides the Dahmers and, and, and the Bundys as far as numbers, as far as... Oh, the, uh, uh, well, the Hillside Stranglers. Mm-hmm. The same thing. They were a killing pair. There's right? two of them. Yeah. Uh, they were a killing pair. They would each find women bring them back and kill them. This, this was a case, the Hillside Stranglers, that this was up in the Hollywood Hills in California, in Los Angeles. They, um, they terrorized that community. Then there was the Boston Strangler. The Boston Strangler poses a plumber. He killed like 30 women. I'm a plumber. Do you need help? Did this, that. He had an ad. They, they'd answer the ad go to the house and kill the woman from other countries. Well, there were well, obviously the most famous serial killer in history is um, the Jack, Jack the, the Ripper. Ripper. Yeah. The, uh, uh, the white chapel murders. Who was he? Nobody knows. There are a whole bunch of theories, 
but he was a prostitute killer roaming the streets of London in the Whitechapel neighborhood, finding prostitutes, killing them. What's your theory on who, who Jack the Ripper is? Nobody ever found out. Some said it was the Duke of Clarence who had an alternate life. Others said that it was a doctor because he was so careful about how he cut up his victims. That's why he was called the Ripper, because he would dissect his victims. So that's part of the sexual thrill of, empo- of, empowering, of empowering yourself over your victims. The Black Dahlia Avenger. I mean, uh, the Black Dahlia murder in Los Angeles in 1947, the murder of Elizabeth Short. People people have thought that was a one-off crime, but it wasn't a one-off crime because now we know there's a book called The Black Dahlia Avenger by Steve Hodell that this person was a serial killer roaming Los Angeles in the 1940s. He was a surgeon. In fact, not only was he a surgeon, he was the venereal disease physician for the county of Los Angeles. So being in that position, even though he was a suspect, all the Los Angeles county officials, like the police chief Parker, all the county officials let him off the hook because he was providing abortions for all their girlfriends. So, you know, a, a lot of, of what we've talked about happened in the 80s and 70s and 90s. Is there any current serial killers or, 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 or recent ones um, is it harder to to be a serial killer in this day and age with social media and everybody with phone cameras, or are they still just as just as prevalent as ever? No, you, you uh, you're right. The serial killer is on the decline, and it's true. And what is replacing the serial killer? The mass murderer. That's why there are so many. It's not why, but it's one reason we're seeing so many mass murders, like one a week. Oh, I see. Sometimes what you're two a week. Okay, Um, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, so so there's almost like an like an inverse crime thing where and the reason uh, serial homicides, uh, the classic serial homicide is on the decline is, as you said, social media, police are on social media. And now with with um, database technology, police, I mean, we were. When I was working for the Department of Justice, we were um, going to different local police departments. And the LAPD, for example, was very proud in their robbery homicide division of their computer setup. And the captain was showing us how they were able to um, use, um, in in this case, it was, um, I forget which Microsoft, it was uh, MySQL, that what they were doing was they were being able to match clues The other thing is the task force. One of the things that Bob Keppel developed back in back in the late 70s was police departments traditionally are very jealous about the propriety of their crime scenes. I mean, if I'm in Los Angeles County and you're in Orange County, by and large, I'm not going to share my crime scene information with you. But what Bob developed was the computer based clue tracking was called homicide investigation tracking service hits and they were able to combine data on serial homicides from various jurisdictions use a database management program and come up with basically similar clues similar locations similar victim profiles that would enable them to in some cases jump ahead of the killer 
to where the killer might be next. So that was so that was the big change. And of course, the FBI's um, violent um, uh, the um, VICAP program, which they would install in hubs at various sheriff's departments and local police departments. And in uh, the VICAP program, they also were able to do the same thing the HITS program did, that is track serial killers. Well, that computer data- databasing was so incredibly effective that they were able to catch serial killers, potential serial killers, long before they actually start a whole scheme of murders. Yeah, and I think what you said earlier about the mass murder, like there's still people with the desire to kill, but because they can't do it over the course of you know years, they can kill 30 people all at once in the course of minutes. Right, exactly. And plus, another difference is the availability of automatic weapons. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and when you look at some of these mass homicides, I mean, a, a person is able to, um, to, to fire off 30, 40 rounds in the space of two minutes before right. reloading. And the really trained ones, like the Adam Lanza in, um, at the Sandy Hook School in Connecticut, he actually was trained. Get this. He trained himself by watching a video games like School Shooter. So what do you learn from a, from a single shooter video game? What you learn is you never run out of ammunition. So you're going to carry multiple clips. You'll fire a series of rounds, pop the clip, put in a new one. Why? Because you don't want to hear that click, click of an empty chamber. You know, right as we're talking on AOL, just came up two dead in shooting incident at Texas A&M University Commerce. Right at this moment, there's a, a shooting going on. Uh, like you said, just a, a part of human race, I guess. Um, last couple questions for you. Who, in your opinion, is almost the, I don't want to say the best because that's the, the, the I know, not, but, but who, who's the total package of ser- serial killers, in your opinion? Both George Hill Hodel, who was the Black Dahlia killer, and Ted Bundy. Because they were the ones to stay. See, George Hill Hodel was never caught. After he raped his daughter, he fled to Hawaii, then to the Philippines, and he became, get this, this is incredible. He was a medical doctor. So he flees to the Philippines where he becomes one of the early uh, scholars writing about mass media manipulation back in the 19, late, early 50s. Hmm. And people still look at his articles in Reader's Digest about how the media uh, can be controlled. Well, yeah, because we don't know a lot about him. I mean, there's there's movies and documentaries about Bundy, but I, I don't know much about, about about George. Right. Well, it's in the book called The Black Dahlia Avenger, and, and it's a fascinating book. It's a story of how his son, who's an LAPD homicide detective, so he's a detective three in the Hollywood division of the LAPD. Basically, if, you, if you've ever read the Michael Connolly books about Hieronymus Bosch, right, Harry Bosch, this guy, this, uh, this homicide detective was the model for Harry Bosch back in the, 19, back in the 1980s and, and 90s. And he caught his own, and he was the one who discovered that his own father had killed this young girl and then discovered that his father, through handwriting analysis, killed a whole spate of people in Los Angeles in the 1940s. Hmm. Never caught, escaped, 
got to the Philippines, became a, a, a famous writer about the psychology of mass media, died in the late 1990s, and basically gave his son a photo of Elizabeth Short, as if to say this is what really happened, and then he died of a stroke. Has there ever been, you mentioned uh, that there was kind of a template for, for Silence of the Lamb. has there ever been a serial killer who was used to help identify and capture other serial killers? Sure. Ted Bundy helped identify uh, Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. Oh, wow. He told police where to look for him. He could tell by the characteristics of the murders what the guy was doing? Absolutely. In fact, the police were tracking this one case. Um, again, really interesting. The police showed Ted Bundy all the cases they were investigating for the serial killer. Uh, so Bundy sees this one name, Agashev, I think her name was, Amina Agashev. All the victims were in their teens or very early 20s. But Amina Agashev was 36. So Bundy says to the police, she's not one of your victims. They say, what do you mean? What do you mean? She's in the same place. He said, no, no, no. This killer only kills young girls. She's an old prostitute. She's too old. Okay. So they finally catch Gary Ridgway. They, they caught him on DNA. That's another thing too. DNA. It's the one thing that is the sure thing about identifying a victim and the victim's killer. Because what they had was trace DNA from some of the victims. That was Gary Ridgway's DNA. So when the police were first investigating him years before, they, uh, they took um, a swab from inside his mouth. But the trace DNA on the victims was too small because when you do a DNA match analysis, the DNA is destroyed. But along comes this person, Kerry Mullis. Kerry Mullis was a biologist. And Kerry Mullis came up with an idea for duplicating DNA, basically doing a photocopy of DNA without destroying the original. It was called polymerase. And um, when that came out, when, uh, when that process was released, the sheriff, Dave Reichert, sent samples of the victims and Gary Ridgway's DNA to a laboratory, and they were able to copy Ridgway's DNA and DNA from the victims, and they had a match, and that's how Ridgway was caught. So Ridgway is caught. He's now sitting in jail, and they say, look, the only way to save yourself from the electric chair or from the death chair or the gas chamber is if you confess everything. So he agrees to do it. He's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. And they give him the name of Amina Agashev. Well, he goes into a fury in the interrogation room. I mean, he loses his temper. Don't you dare assign a crime to me that I didn't do. Ted Bundy was right. She wasn't in the victim profile. She was too old. Wow. Oh man, lots of uh, lots of uh, interesting information there about a, a certain type of a human being that hopefully we never, either one of us, ever uh, run into uh, on the street or elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Bill. Uh, very interesting. Oh, my pleasure. Very interesting, and uh, I know you got a lot of other topics we can discuss. So I look forward to having you back again soon. Uh, it would be my pleasure. 